Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Esther Wojcicki, the author of How to Raise Successful People, Simple Lessons for Radical Results. If anybody knows how to raise successful people, I would say Esther is probably a pretty good source of information. Her daughters rose to the top of ultra-competitive, male-dominated professions, and they did so by following their passions and thinking for themselves. In addition, Wojcicki is also the founder of the media arts programs at Palo Alto High School, She started there as an English teacher many years ago, and the school newspaper has now grown into 10 different publications that involve over 750 students and have won numerous awards all over the country. Some of her past students at Palo Alto High School include Gaddy Epstein, the media editor at The Economist, Jeremy Lin, a Harvard graduate and point guard for the Atlanta Hawks, and James Franco, the award-winning actor, writer, and director. Her book lays out the simple philosophy that she's used to raise her daughters and to grow the journalism program at Palo Alto High School into the hugely successful collection of publications that it is today. We are so excited to speak with Esther today about how to raise successful people. The book is How to Raise Successful People, Simple Lessons for Radical Results, and it talks a lot about your experiences at a teacher and running the newspaper at uh, this high school, I believe it is, and um It talks a lot about your experience as a parent raising three successful daughters and has a lot of really insightful tips. So how did you get to this place where you're writing the book? So my origin story. So I went off to college at UC Berkeley, and fortunately I got a scholarship. Without that, I don't know how I would have made it. Um, I worked all during college. I worked, you know, I worked on an after-school program. I worked as a model. I worked as a house cleaner. I I had a lot of odd jobs. Um, But I I made it through. I'm very happy to report. And, And then at the end, I got married. You know, right? I first was graduation and then was marriage, literally um, two months apart. <laughs> wow. Yeah, because well, the pressure on me to get married was still pretty intense. So I learned a lot of lessons in that. And what inspired me to write the book was that a lot of people were asking me, like, well, what'd you do with your daughters? 
how did they ever get to be like where they are? How did you, when did you feed them? You know, what was going on? <laughs> totally. What is in the water at your household over there? That's right. How'd you do it? So uh, then the, the, the intensity of the questioning got pretty strong. So I thought, well, I bet. Hey, I'll just write a book. <laughs> and then I, when I have a question, I was like, Hey, I've got a book for you here. Let me give you this book. <laughs> and so, I mean, that worked really pretty well. But then it didn't stop, you know, just with my daughters. But I I ended up when my youngest daughter, Anne, was five, I went back to work as a teacher in a local high school yep. called Palo Alto High School. And um, and in that school, I mean, it was pretty exciting uh, for me. I decided I was going to teach in a totally different way. You know, that the typical teacher was lecturing all the time and bossed all the kids around. And I just realized, you know, after two years that I was losing a lot of kids because they didn't want to do what I was telling them to do. They wanted to do what they wanted to do. So it was a constant battle. And, right. um, and basically, I was luring them into doing what I wanted them to do by the grade, right? It was like, if you don't do yeah, what I want right. want you to do, you're going to get a bad grade. Carrot, stick, stick, let's go. Yeah, yeah. Just, right. it'll get you with this. But so I, I decided to change my strategy, my pedagogy in the classroom to give kids more control of their learning. And this was 1986, 1987 all through the 80s. And for those of you that have been around that long, you will know that this was not a popular philosophy back then. The idea was if you didn't keep those kids in control, you were failing. And all the books that teachers read were on discipline and control and you know how to send the student to the office, how to control your class, and um, you know what to do with them if they didn't do what they were supposed to do. When I switched to a more collaborative approach, it was dramatic. I mean, yeah. first of all, the numbers of kids taking my class grew like crazy. Everybody wanted to be in the class. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I bet. <laughs> word gets out fast. Word, hey, this teacher is cool. That's right. Word got yeah. out really fast. And uh, so um, actually... By ninth, like the next semester, the next semester, <laughs> people were wondering, like, what are you doing in that class? You know, are you giving out free uh, pizza to kids or what's happening? Yeah, right, right, right. And, you know, it's kind of, it was hard for me to say, well, you know, I'm just giving them some freedom. Do you remember what that is? Mm. <laughs> it's like why everybody came to the United States, remember? Religious freedom, freedom of speech, all that. Yeah, Well, right. so... You know, it seemed to have worked to attract all those people to America. So I'm just attracting people to my class. And so it worked. Um, and I, with time in the 1990s, I sort of perfected it. It got better. So I gave more kids more control. The quality of the product went up. The product being the newspaper went up and up and up. And we were winning yeah. top of the nation gold crowns from Columbia. And, you know, wow. it was all primarily because the kids were so empowered and so happy about being there. And by yeah. 1999, 2000, 
I started another publication to, because the overflow, I was like, I had a hundred kids. <laughs> what am I going to do with all these kids? So we need another one. <laughs> I started a magazine called Verde. And I took like 30 kids out of my class and put them in that. And then honestly, within two years, 30 more appeared. And so I had even more kids. So to make a long story short, every two years, 1990, uh, 2002, 2004, 2006, it just continued. And yeah. I kept starting more publications. So today, <laughs> today we have 10 different publications. Oh my and, gosh. And about 700 kids. It's just like, and all these other no. teachers. Yes, I hired, um, there's five other teachers. So it's, yeah, it's a great story. <laughs> and everybody went like, how do you control all those teenagers? And, and actually the answer to that is collaboration collaboration yeah, right. and giving them an opportunity for creativity and then kindness. Oh my God, there's nothing like kindness. Treating them with kindness works like a charm. And uh, so that's, that's basically the story of how I wrote the book because everyone wanted to know like what's going on in your journalism program. You know, it's now the largest one in the United States. And I, just tried to explain right. it. And so my parenting, my teaching style, and then also within the corporate world, why do some companies seem to do so well? They thrive, uh, their you know, products are good, their services are good. The, it's just really a nice place to work. And the same philosophy works in the corporate world so that um, people, in jobs who are treated with trust and respect and given some independence. And, you know, if you make a mistake, you're just like, okay, we're just going to do it again. They are more willing to take a risk and be innovative because they know that they're going to be treated in a way that they wish everybody would be treated with kindness. So that's why I wrote the book. That's a long answer for a very short question. <laughs> you writing here distrust we're in kind of a crisis distrust has seeped into every sphere of our lives you write on page 29 the 2018 edelman trust barometer a measure of the general public's average trust found the united states dropped nine points in the global trust scale the steepest decline ever measured in this country so what's going on with trust why is it kind of so low why is it more important now than ever well the I would say that in 2020 now, the trust is even lower. Yeah. And I think it's because of, unfortunately, we have a government that is causing a lot of divisive behavior. So people, you know, they don't trust each other. And this, the studies showed that people didn't even trust their next door neighbor. And, uh, you know, those afraid to go out and ask for help to the next door neighbor. So now in this pandemic that we have, uh, there is a lot of trust that is missing, especially 
between what is considered the right and the left, even though we're all one country, we all have the same goal. Uh, there's a lot of distrust going on. And what that does is it just makes us all anxious and all depressed. And it works against us as a unified group because we really have just one common enemy at the moment, and it's the pandemic. And we should all be working together as a team and not fighting with each other about one thing or another. And then in the midst of this COVID pandemic, we then had this tragedy of the George Floyd killing. And what it brought to the top of everyone's mind, how the country is really a different country depending on the color of your skin. You know, I, for years I heard from my black students that it was really hard for them to stay late at school to walk home at night because they would get stopped and harassed by the police. And I was like, really? But then actually walked with one of them and he was telling me the truth. And this was actually, you know, 15 years ago. And so it's been going on for a long time. And so there's unfortunately less trust now, but there should be more. We need more trust. We need to trust each other. We're all human beings. We all have, you know, no matter what the color of your skin is, your what your religion is, what your ethnic background is, we're all human beings and we all have the same desire, the same goal. And that is, you know, to live a good life. And I think that we all need to step back a little bit and take a breath and realize that we can all work together and in spite of our leadership, you know, because whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or I don't know, all the other designations, we really care about our fellow citizens and we really need to make that clear to everybody. You have a kind of some steps on page 45. You have some steps for building trust with teenagers and kind of, yeah, creating trust in your household, which I thought were really savvy. So what can parents do to create trust with teenagers? Well, one thing that they can do, first of all, would I, you know, it sounds kind of crazy for me to recommend my book, but it's, I am recommending my book, but just to give you a sort of the, cliff note version here one thing the number one thing that teenagers want and it's innate by the way it's i think it's built into your dna is independence number one thing they want and it's very hard for parents to give those kids independence because you know coming from a good space they're trying really hard to say I only tried this when I was a kid and didn't work. Not only that, I got in a lot of trouble. And so I'm just going to try to protect you and tell you, no, no, don't do that. You can't do that. Actually, I'm going to forbid you from doing that. And the more controlling you become, the bigger the distrust is between parent and child. And so the teenage years are a time when kids are trying to be as independent as possible. So if you run counter to that and you try to over control, 
kids are either going to defy you directly or they're going to deceive you. And you don't want either one of those. And deception, I think, is probably the worst. You know, we all know about the teenager who comes back from a party or comes back from going out with their friends and the parent says, so how was it? What'd you do? Yeah. And they're like, oh, it was great. It was fine. And they go into their room and that's it. They don't want to say anything else. Yeah. It's like, yeah. what? And so you're the parents. What like, happened? Hey, hey, well, what happened? What'd you do? Uh-uh. Let's see. <laughs> uh, we, just, we just hung out together. It's like, Chill, hey, you know? guys, yeah. what about detail? <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but that's what happens when there's a lot of distrust and when there's a lot yeah. of no respect because some of those right. ideas are really a little crazy. And I can just give you one idea. So one of my grandchildren decided in the middle of the pandemic that she wanted to drive about 300 miles away to a place in the mountains. And, you know, you weren't supposed to go anywhere, right? You're supposed to stay home and yeah. not anywhere. And so the minute that these restrictions were lifted just a slight bit, ah, time yeah. for me to go. And my daughter was like biting her nails, like, what? You're going to drive up there? You know, what? I forgot. Are you a good driver? Oh, yeah. Let's see. We, did we do the test? <laughs> But honestly, she went and everything was fine and she planned it and yeah. so forth. I know that it's a nail-biting experience for parents, but you do need to give them yeah. this opportunity to grow. As a parent, I sympathize because I know what it was like. You know, you just have to do it. Give them that opportunity. It should because, make you uncomfortable. Um, yeah. You know, that means you're, they're pushing their boundaries a little bit and... You have a great story in here about your grandchildren going shopping at Target, and they're pretty young, and so you just have them create the list together, and then you just send them into Target, and you said, okay, I'll pick you up in an hour, and I'll come to with the credit card, and you know, it's their back-to-school shopping, and they had to make sure they had everything on their list and everything, and then so your daughter was like... My daughter was freaking out. I mean, what happened is she asked me to take them shopping at Target to buy back-to-school supplies. It's like, Sure. But then in the car driving there, I was like, well, who knows back to school supplies better than they do? Well, <laughs> no one. Okay, so hey, Come on. they were nine. And I was like, hey, you guys, you're smart enough. I'll just drop you off here. Just go and get your stuff. Call me when you're done. And I'll come with the credit card and pay for it. Yep. But as you said, my daughter, well, she didn't know that I was doing this, but she called in the middle. And she's like, so how's the shopping going, mom? And I said, oh, I just dropped him off at Target. <laughs> I mean, I thought she was going to need to have some kind of resuscitation at the other end. But anyway, I just want you to know that was a great opportunity in our family because, you know, those kids, they just bloomed. They were so proud of themselves. Mm. And, and my daughter, she had to agree that they did do a great job. But it was a little stressful, yeah, for her. Yeah. Even though I, as I said in the book, and I'll say again right now, you know, June 2020, Target looks like a pretty safe place to go shopping to me.
right? That nowadays, many college graduates have no idea what they want to do, so they come home and sit there. Not a good plan. How do you know when to let them find their way and when to intervene? Here's my policy. They have to be doing something. Not doing anything is a problem. So how did you come upon that policy, and what do you mean by that? So I think it's really bad to just sit around and feel sorry for yourself or just sit around and, you know, not do anything. Even in this pandemic, I think it's really important to do something. So, I mean, I've been, my garden looks really great. It hasn't looked this good for years. So basically, I think that kids coming home from college, if they have no idea what they want to do, have to get a job doing something because they need to explore. You need to be connected with the world. You need to give yourself an opportunity to interact with people in different job situations. So back when Susan, when my daughter, Susan, Janet, and all graduated from college, we used to have these temporary jobs. Now they don't seem to have temporary jobs, but they do have gigs. So I always had them doing something. I said, well, sit around and take a rest for a few weeks, but then you need to do something. And also, you know, you need to contribute to the family in some way. Do something, you're part of the team. So they did do something. I mean, Susan got one of the first jobs that she got. It actually might have been in in a summer job. She was managing all the garbage trucks in Palo Alto. They have a schedule and they have somebody at the yep. front who has to make sure that they all hit the right spots and do all that stuff. That was so dispatching. Dispatching. Yeah. And yeah. she learned a lot. It was an interesting job. And then my other daughter, they all had something. My daughter, Anne, well, she came home. She didn't know what to do either. They all had this, I don't know what to do thing. I was like, you should have sure. thought about that before you majored in whatever it was. They didn't. They I was just following my heart, mom. <laughs> I, that's right. But it didn't matter because they all eventually found something that they wanted to do. And it's a process, you know, kids cannot predict what they want to be. They have to try it out and see how they like it. And if they like it, then they move on. I mean, Anne was probably took the longest she decided after she had graduated with a degree in molecular biophysics to be a babysitter. And I was like, really? You know, maybe you could have done that before you spent all this money on this degree. But um, after two months of babysitting and becoming the most popular babysitter on the Stanford campus, she decided that she was actually going to take up this job offer that she had gotten. So, but, you know, I never said you have to move out. I never said anything. I just said, you've got to do something and you've got to somehow help the world because, you know, no matter what it is, we all can contribute to making each other's lives better in some way. So that was my philosophy. And I still think that's a very important philosophy. No sitting home feeling sorry for yourself. We're here with Esther Wojcicki talking about how to raise successful people. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. 
And all you have to do is capture them once. And then from that one point, you can expand and say, well, are you interested in this too? And they're like, well, maybe, maybe not. But they're more <laughs> open to being interested in those things. If the kid really doesn't want to do it, you need to step back and let them make a decision. And she never micromanaged her kids. And Elon, I've talked to Elon many times, he hated school because he hated being told what to memorize all the time. And, you know, he's, yeah. was, as you can see, he's a creative genius. And so he wanted to be able to be creative. So it worked out for him that, you know, he didn't have a mom that was on his case all the time. So sometimes some of those kids who don't want to do everything you're telling them to do, you know, you might want to respect the fact that they might be really super creative and they might end up being much more talented than you think. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.